Lord, we ask you to bless this evening. We thank you for your, your love and your care. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at your word, and we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. But I determined this with myself, that I would not again come unto you in heaviness. For, I, for if I make you sorrow, sor, sorry, who is he then that makes me glad? But the same which is made sorry by me. And I wrote this same unto you, lest that when I come, you should have sorrow for, from them of whom I ought also to rejoice. Having confidence in you all, that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of, the, of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. But if any have caused grief, he hath but grieved me, but in part, that I may not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment, which is inflicted of many. So that contrarywise, you ought, have, ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up in overmuch sorrow. There, wherefore, I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. To this end also that I did write, that you might know the proof of you, whether you be obedient in all things. All right, so we're going to stop there. There are many that believe that chapter 2 is referring to the man in 1 Corinthians who was sleeping with his mother-in-law. And I understand where they're coming from, but I really think that this is more generalized toward almost all sin. Because Paul's whole tenor here is to reach out to the sinner. And so we're going to look at this a little bit. He says, but, you know, we, we see the but, so we want to find out, remember that the first, you know, the first chapter is that Paul was giving his credentials as an apostle, his credentials as the founder of the church, saying, I love you guys, and I, and I have the right to speak this, you know, correct you. Uh, Corinth had a big problem with Paul. He was the founder of the church, but they kept forgetting that he was the founder of the church. They, you know, all they ever thought about Paul was, this is the man that keeps giving us a hard time about our sins. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, that was Paul's, most of Paul's writing to them was, you've got to correct your problems. It's, you're, you're not being a good witness. Uh, so we see this. He says, but I determined this with myself. You know, I have esteemed or opinioned to myself, with myself, that I should not see you again in heaviness, you know, in sorrow. He goes, I'm going to write these things to you in this whole chapter. Is I'm going to write these things to you. They're going to be hard, but I want them to be hard with you so you can get over it. By the time I come, we can be joyous together, and I don't have to speak harshly to you. Paul had the heart of a pastor and loved these people. He's going, when I come, I don't want to be the one being critical of you all the time. I want to come in. I want to enjoy our fellowship one with the other. And Corinth is a church that had lots of problems. And you know, we've said this before, so many people go, I wish I was part of the first century church. They had such a great church. Well, why do we have so many letters to all these churches if they were such great churches talking about all their problems? They were just like our churches today. They had lots of problems. Corinth kept looking into the gifts and saying, we've got to have gifts. We have many churches in our day that are overemphasizing gifts. 
Corinth had problems with people coming in that were sinning. Churches today have problems with people sinning. These churches were just like our churches. They were closer to Christ. They should have been able to keep it together, but they weren't any different. Nothing new under the sun. And Paul's going, you know, hey, I'm going to write this letter to you. I want you to get these things in order so that when I come, I don't have to come and, and hammer on people. I want to come and be joyful when I come and visit you. And, you know, this church started during his second missionary trip. I gave you the map showing your missionary trip because he's going to reference Troas, which is up just on the northwestern uh, part of uh, what's now Turkey or Asia Minor of their day. But he came to Corinth, and it was one of the last churches he ministered to on his second, second ministry. He's going to go to Ephesus and, and then to uh, Pathos and then back to uh, Caesarea. So it's one of the last churches he established on his second missionary trip. And they kept giving him all kinds of headaches. So where did it start? Caesarea? Starts at Caesarea, goes up coast toward uh, Sicily, uh, Sicilia, and then crosses over the middle part of what's now Turkey, was Asia Minor. Minor. He was from Tarsus. He was from Tarsus, but spent a lot of time in Jerusalem. Remember, his testimony is that he was a Jew of Jews. He was trained by the third, uh, Gamilia, the third greatest Jewish teacher of all time, not of his day, but of all time, he's number three. So during Paul's day, he was sitting under the greatest teacher of his day. So Paul is an exceptional student when it comes to the Bible because this man would only take the best of the best of the best. Okay, he would be the Harvard and the Yale that's taken only the best students. And he would just go, okay, who do you have? You know, all you little towns, who do you have? And I will only take the best. And he would interview them and you know, he only took the best of the best. So for Paul to even get into his school is saying a lot. And to be taught by him was really saying a lot. So, you know, he was taught by, which tells us a lot about who Paul was and his understanding of the scriptures. Because I'm not sure if you understand what would happen. To be a rabbi was a great honor in the first place. You would go into your synagogue, and the, and the rabbi of your synagogue would look at the people because you raised your children to follow you in your business. So Jesus would have been raised by Joseph to be a carpenter. But the rabbi in the synagogue there at Nazareth would have recognized Jesus. Would the, the rabbi in Tarshish would have recognized Saul and said, hey, he's got, he can handle the word of God pretty good. I'm going to personally train him. Well, Gamelia was the one who would then get the best of their students and talk to them and say, I'm going to take the best of all the synagogues out there. I'm going to take the best students because he was the number one teacher. I mean, it would be the, the battle to get into a good school in our day starts early on in life. You know, okay? The parent wants to get their kid in the right preschool, in the right you know, elementary school, the right high school. Not that much different back then. You needed him recognized. He had to be taught by the right people. He would have been taught by the best rabbi available in Tarshish. And I don't know that there was more than one. But if there was, he'd have been taught by the top in Tarshish, who then would have been able to go, hey, you know, Camelia, we're coming down to Jerusalem. I want you to meet my student. I want you to meet my student. He is really good. And this is true of any great school. 
whether it be a dance school or a business school or you know, cosmology, whatever it might be, there's certain people who take only the best of the best. And if you want to get into that, you know, that school, and you know, I think of places like, uh, what's the top music? So Juilliard, you know, Juilliard only takes the best of the best, you know, and, it, and you can be really good and still not make it in that school because they only take so many students. And if you're, you know, let's say they take 100 students and you're 101, you don't go. Yeah, you don't go if you're the if you're the hundred and first student. You know, you missed it by one, and yeah, you might. So, this is the competition that Paul did, and yet the Corinthians said, you know, hey, you know, they had problems with the Judaizers, they had problems with sin, they had problems with keeping themselves on track. How many Christians have the same problems that the Corinthians have? Most, many of us do. And so Paul was their, was their founder, and he's going, look, this is who I am. What, what is this big problem? Why, can't, you know, why do we have to go through this every time I talk to you, every time I send you a letter, I have to prove who I am with you? Well, that's part of what was going on with this, is that they weren't taking a strong stance and allowing, allowing sin to thrive in the church which is that whole part of, from, from 1 Corinthians where the man was sleeping with his mother-in-law. And Paul says, you know, it's not just that he's sleeping with his mother-in-law, which is bad enough, but he's bragging about it, and you're accepting his bragging about it. And this is the thing we bring up with, with churches. Anybody and everybody is allowed to come to church. But if they're going to come in and say, I want you to participate in my sin and look how sinful I am, at some point, we're going to say, no, you're not allowed in church. Okay? You're trying to drag people into your sin? No, you're not allowed in. You think your sin is okay and good? No. God calls it sin, and if you're not going to recognize it as sin, then don't come here to brag about how you're, you know, you're living in sin. And this is what he, this man was doing, that Paul said, kick him out so that he can learn righteousness, so he can learn how bad this is. Uh, and so that's why a lot of people think he's being talked about here, but I think it's more general. I think he's talking about all sins as he goes through this. In that day, if you got kicked out of the church, you were pretty much out of the church because there was only the one, one, one pastor and the, they had the, the bishop of that area. If there was more than one church, you had the bishop that oversaw that area. So when you were kicked out, you were kicked out. It's not like our day. If you kick somebody out of a church, they'll just go to the next denomination or church and get into that church. And we can't help that. All we can do is try to keep our churches pure. We're all sinners. So the way I'm going to look at this is you're here in churches, which is where I want you. If you're trying to say that my lifestyle is okay and it's a sinful lifestyle, then no, we're not going to, we're not going that far. And at some point you will be asked to leave just because if you want us to admit that your lifestyle is good, no, that's not going to happen. If you're trying to drag others into your sinful lifestyle, that's not, not going to happen. Okay? Let's make it something real simple. You're, you're somebody who's a drunk, and you're trying to get everybody to go to your house after church to start drinking. No, we're not going to allow that to be happening, and you'll be asked to leave. Not because you're a drunk, but because you're, you're trying to drag people into your lifestyle. All right? So here's what Paul's saying. <laughs> 
you know, I want you to get your stuff taken care of because when I come, I want to be joyful with you. I don't want to be hammering on you. No, no pastor, no parent wants to hammer on those that, are, that they're dealing with. They want to be able to rejoice with them. But we also know that there's times when, as a parent knows, they have to take care of their kids' disobedience and help them be good, productive citizens. For a pastor or teachers, we teach people to be following God and making good, productive, heavenly citizens. And this is what Paul's saying. I'm writing these hard things to you because when I come, I want to be rejoicing with you. I don't want to have to do all this hard speech. Uh, verse 2 says, For if I make you sorry, who is he then that makes me glad? But the same that is made sorry by me. He's saying, I take my pleasure in, my, in you. you know, pastors take pleasure in their church. They take pleasure in seeing people grow. They take pleasure in, in watching people learn about God. Does that mean that sometimes we're going to step on toes? Obviously, sometimes we've got to say, this is not right. But, you know, the great pleasure is when they respond and they start growing and you say, yeah, that's what I want to see. That person is growing. And ultimately, our goal is to watch them maybe outstrip us and become even better than we are. And I've shared with you the greatest things I can look at is, especially my oldest son, who's really learning to handle the Bible well. And I look forward to someday being able to, maybe I'll have to ask him questions about the Bible. <laughs> you know, that would be the greatest thing, you know. You know, to say, yeah, that person's grown so much, I'm now asking them the questions. Yes. Uh, you know, this is now, I trained this person when they were a wee fellow and through their young adult life, and then they went off and they became a pastor, and now they can really handle the Word of God well, and they know it better than I do. And, you know, this is where true growth happens for, for people is when we can say that person's doing better than I am. And we all want our children to do better than we do doesn't always happen, sometimes rarely happens, but our goal and hope is that our children will be more educated, higher, higher paid than we are, better job than we are. You know, at least if you're a good parent, if you're, you know, uh, so a pastor's ultimate goal is to see people in his church grow to the point where I've taught you what I can teach you, now go out and find somebody else and really learn how to handle the word of God and do more than I've ever thought about doing. And this is the great thing that we see so often with good pastors. They train up people. They train up people to go out and be good, strong leaders in Christ. This is what Paul's saying, you know, hey, I made you sorry, but hey, you're the ones that are going to make me glad. Take the sorrow that I put you, repent, and I'll be happy. I'll be happy when you repent. Because that's what Jesus wants from us. He wants repentance from our heart so that he can take joy Hey, Father, did you see them? You know, they really screwed up, but look where, look where they're at now. You know, look where they're at. Of course, the Father looks down and says, well, all I see is you, son. <laughs> I see you. They're wrapped up in your righteousness, but I can picture Jesus. Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Can, yeah. Hey, Holy Spirit, you know what they did? Yeah. Well, I know what they did last week, but look where they're at today. I know what they did last year, but look. Look where they've, look, look how far they, Holy Spirit, you've done a really good job teaching them. I am really proud of where they're, where they're at. You know, I almost picture this, you know, especially between Jesus and the Holy Spirit, because they get to work with us. The Father sees the Son. When he looks at us, he just sees the Son in his righteousness. But I can just picture the Holy Spirit and the Jesus saying, you know, Jesus saying, Holy Spirit, you're doing a really good job. And they're, they're growing. You're doing a wonderful job. 
But he says, you know, Paul saying all these things. He says, verse 3, And I wrote this same unto you, lest when I came I should have sorrow from them in whom I ought to rejoice, having, this, having confidence in you that my joy is of all of you all. Saying, I'm writing these things so that when I come I can, we can just have joy. I can joy in how far you've come along. And this is one of the greatest things I look at. And when I look at certain people in this church and how far they've grown and how far along they've come and going, yeah, look at that. I haven't had, all I've been doing is teaching them the word. It's God who's doing it. But boy, it's just joyful to watch growth. Just as it is with my kids to watch how they've grown and how they've, how they've matured. You know, that's what we're looking for as a teacher. And Paul's saying, you know, I just want to be able to joy in you. I want to be able to go to Jerusalem and say, you know, that church in Corinth, you should see where they're at with God. You know, they've had their problems, but you should see where they're at now. They have, they have grown. You know, you know the, the church in chloride, you know, they've got some problems, but they're, they're growing. <laughs> they're growing. And the wonderful thing is, when it, as a pastor, be able to say, you know, if you just knew my people, if you just knew my people and knew how loving they were and how God is growing them. It's a great, great privilege to be able to say that. Not that we're perfect, not that the people are perfect, but God is growing them. And this is what Paul's saying. I want to see, I just want to take joy in you because you're not being the same people you were last, last time I came. You know, you're responding to the news. And isn't he also saying, I don't want to listen to you all the time. I want to enjoy you. Basically. He's going, I don't, that's exactly what it is. I don't want to fuss at you all the time. I don't want to be correcting you all the time. I just want to be able to say, look at them. They're growing. Now, part of the job of a teacher is to, I wouldn't necessarily say fuss, but yet that's not a bad word for it, you know, fuss, uh, correct, instruct, you know. But you don't want to be doing it all the time. Just as a parent doesn't always want to be having to correct their kid, they're hoping that someday the kid learns, you know. Teachers and pastors are hoping that one day their church members learn. And it's like, oh, okay, we can move to the next section now. You finally learned this lesson. We can move to the next lesson. I get to fuss at you about a new topic. <laughs> uh, verse 4, for out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have more abundantly for you. He's saying, I wrote this letter, and I was in anguish. I was in sorrow, and I was in anguish, tightened up. And I was in tears because I had to write these things to you. And I think about this. A good parent does not enjoy discipline in their children. No. Okay? There's sorrow when you have to discipline your children especially as they get older and you're disciplining them. It's, it's one thing when they're young and you're having to smack their hand and keep telling them no and, and try to direct them. But when they get to be old enough that they should know better, those are when times really get hard. And then they get to be adults and you're still trying to correct them. That is really hard. Because at that point, they're supposed to be able to be self-disciplined. And that's what Paul's saying. You know, It was the anguish of heart that I wrote these things to you. You, you thought they were really hard and bitter, but, you know, I wrote them in tears because I really look at you for the love. And basically saying what we have said oftentimes, because of his love, he disciplined them. And a lot of people go, well, you, you just don't love me. 
No, it's because I love you that I discipline. You know, if I didn't love my children, I'd be going, oh, go ahead and play on I-40. You know, during the middle of the busiest time. You know, just go play on the road. I don't care. But I love them saying, keep as far away from I-40 as possible. You know, uh, keep off Stockton Hill Road. Keep off these roads where, where there's a lot of cars and stuff because I, I love you enough that I don't want you playing in the street. I don't want you playing with drugs. I don't want you playing with alcohol. You know, if I didn't love you, I wouldn't care and go do whatever you want. But because I love you, don't do these things. And sometimes love can sound pretty hard on people because you, you, it sounds sometimes like you're always critical of them. And you've got to be careful that you don't get into that, that aspect, too, of always being critical. You know, you've got to see what's going right and praise what's going right once in a while. And too many parents, and you usually start out in love, just start criticizing their kid, criticizing their kid, criticizing. And it's like the kid's going, can't I ever do anything right? And the parent's going, yeah, you do, but you know, you've got all these other things I keep noticing. Well, we need to be able to go, just like Paul's saying, I want to build you up. I want to, I want to be able to edify you, but you do have a lot of problems, Corinth. You've got a lot of issues that I'm having to work with, but I love you so much that I want to see you grow. And it says, you know, but that you may know the love that I have more abundantly unto you. Paul's saying, I have just so much love. You can't even, Church of Corinth, you don't even know the love I have for you. You've been concentrating, we've been talking a lot about this. You've been concentrating on all the things I'm saying negative and none of the things I'm saying positive. You know, you're not looking at anything good. And we've been talking about this quite a bit over the last couple of weeks, and I don't know why. You know, we keep concentrating so often on the negatives that God says we can't do and forget about the things he says we can do. The church at Corinth kept looking at all the negatives that Paul was telling them they had and forgetting the, the things that he praised about. Not that he praised them for a lot of stuff, but they never looked at the stuff he praised them for. All they could look at is the negative. And we see this in our own actions sometimes, and oftentimes we see it from our kids and the way our kids perceive us. Well, you're never saying anything good about me. Our, you, my boss never says anything good about me. One of the things I had to learn as a boss was to say positive things about, to people and about people. Because I was a hard, hard person to work for. I expected perfection. Because I tried to make perfection myself, so I expected others to try to do it. But you know, I've learned over the years people respond better to love and, and mercy and grace than they do rules. And Paul is saying, I want you to know I love you. I love you greatly. Verse 5, but, okay, he's going to change it a little bit. If any have caused grief, they have not grieved me, but in a small part, that I may not overcharge you all or lay too great a burden on you. He goes, if I've caused you grief... It's not me who's been the, the chief recipient of this grief. I have been grieving too, but I want to be careful not to overburden you. And this is something that is so easy to do, especially if you've accomplished something and you've grown in some area. A lot of times this will happen to Christians who've been walking with God for a long time, and they'll forget what it was like to struggle with some sin. You know, maybe they got saved at 20 or 30 years old, and they had a foul mouth, and they cursed all the time. And then they, God has broken them of that. And then they get to the place where these new Christians coming in irritate them because of their foul mouth. Uh, 
you know, uh, or crude mouth. It might not even be a foul mouth. It might just be crude language. And they're going, you know, get it right. You know, I'm so spiritual now. I can't, I can't allow this kind of stuff in my presence. We need to be careful as mature Christians that we don't put too high a standard on these new Christians learning in their area. And, that, and the way I say it is where, where we've grown, we've got to be careful. You know, I, I, I never have any problem with that area anymore in my life, so you need to get your life together. Or we're not going to fellowship. That could be a possibility. Yeah. But I think it's more the, the hyper-spiritual, you know, I've grown so much, I can't fellowship with you immature people that can't control your mouth or can't control your, your lustful thoughts or whatever it might be that you're struggling with. And we need to be careful about that. God, help them grow. Give me love and mercy for them so that, and grace toward them so that I can be able to help them. And they might learn a lot faster than we did because a lot of times it took us a long time to learn these lessons. And then we expect, you know, and the sad thing for us is we might have taken decades to learn something, and we expect this Christian who's just been saved to be instantly like we are. We forget the decades it took us to get there, and, well, what's wrong with you? You've been saved the whole three days. Why aren't you, why aren't you reading your Bible every day and coming to church every time the doors are open and cleaning up your language and not, and not having desires after, after these lustful thoughts? You know, get with it. You know? And I know that that's a little extreme, but you know, isn't that the way we oftentimes think? Yes. You've been a Christian for three years. How come you aren't where I am after 40, 40 years? Well, you know, it took you 40 years. I, give me some time. Oh, no, you, you got to get, you know, we've got to be careful with this. Be very careful with our growth that takes a long time and not have expectations on people that are just at the beginning of those growth steps and saying, you know, get up here. <laughs> Make this 40-foot jump and get up here. Skip all the steps in between and just get up here on the 40th floor. I know you're on the first floor, but skip all the other ones that I, that I had to stop on for a period of time. Right. Just get up here. And we do this frequently in our lifestyle. And we want to be careful of that. Now, the one thing about it is we're truly discipling these people. They'll probably get up, up to where we are a lot faster than we did because we had to learn the hard way. We might not have had a discipler helping us all the way through these steps. But you know, if we're helping to disciple these people, they can get up fast if we have the right attitude. And we want to be able to do this, because I've seen this happen. People get on fire for God and, and make huge steps in God's life that took me years to learn in many cases. And watch them get up there, and that says, okay, you got here in half the time I, I got here. I can't wait to see where you're going to go how far you're going to go. And that's been my attitude most of my life. I've had people go, well, you know, I could do your job better than you can. I'm going, be my guest. You can have it. You, know, you can have my job. There are so many jobs in the church that I'll go find something else. If you really think you can do this one better and you can convince the pastor or the, or the church that you can do it better, be my guest. And some people might have. And I said it this morning, or last week, I don't remember, but you know, when God moves us on from a position that we're doing and we think, well, nobody will ever be able to replace us, and we watch what God does with the person who replaces us and what great things that they, he gives them, it's almost fun. It's almost like, God, wait, what's my next job? 
Mm -hmm. I just can't wait to see who, who you're going to put in my place and, and, the, and the improvements they're going to make. You know, if you're so proud and arrogant that you don't think anybody can replace you, no, you're in trouble. And I do know many Christians that feel that way. I can't leave this job. There is nobody who can do it like I can. Well, you're right. There's probably nobody that can do it like you can, but they might be able to do it better. They might just be able to do it better because they'll, they'll look at things that you never even thought about looking at. And every time in my 47 years with God, I've watched people move on and watched God put new people in their place and it doesn't, meet, doesn't skip a beat. Matter of fact, it usually gets better. I'm not saying that they did a bad job. The person who gets moved on probably was doing a fine job. But God puts somebody in with a new heart, new vision, new direction, and you see things grow. And even more importantly, a lot of times God moves one person out and puts two people in. Okay? And now all of a sudden you've got two people, two, two things going in, in, in multiple directions. And it's so wonderful to watch. Not saying that that person did two people's jobs, but God says, okay, I've got a new direction. I'm going to split this job now and make it a bigger job. And we're going to put two people in it. We're going to put three people in it, whatever it might be. You know, one person steps out and God says, here, let me just put a bunch of people in here to fill that spot and, and watch what happens. And, you know, it's just, it's fun to watch and say, oh, God, what are you going to do? How are you going to, what are you going to do to make this work? Because sometimes you've got people stepping in and you're going, God, uh, I don't know how that person can do that job. You know, they're, they're not qualified. And God just says, of course they're not qualified. I'm the one that qualifies them. They're going to depend on me, and I'm going to do the work through them. Amen. Now, there's, a, there's an old statement that God doesn't qualify, doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. Oh, I love that. Okay? God gives us the ability to do what he calls us to do. So when people come to me and say, well, you know, I'm really thinking I should do this, but I just don't think I can do it, I go, you're the perfect candidate. Because it's all got to be God anyway. I'm always worried when somebody goes, well, I think I should be. You know, when I was in charge of the deacons at College Park, there was a, every once in a while, I think I really should be a deacon. Why? Well, I just, I'd be a good deacon. Now, they might have been a good deacon, but it always bothered me when they would come to me with the idea that I should be a deacon. I should be a Sunday school teacher because I am the greatest teacher since, since Jesus. <laughs> You know, going, okay, well, let's see how good you, you know, let's, let's take a watch. Let's listen to you interact with the current teachers. Then we'll see how good a teacher you are. You know, we need to be very careful of people who think that they're the one that should be doing it. They scare me because they're thinking, I'm qualified. I should be doing it. Now, they may be called. And I'm not saying they're not, you know, that they're never called. You know, the churches that I have been in, I, you know, before this one, I've, I'm a teacher. I would go and say, you know, if you get any openings, I'd love to be able to teach. Okay? Usually, though, that was after I'd been around for six months or so to prove that I could handle the Word of God. I didn't usually just go in and say, hey, you know what? I'm the greatest teacher you're going to have. You need to put me in a class. You need to give me a class. Uh, no, I came in. I'd sit under teachers. I showed people that I could be submitted to the current teacher, show them that I could handle the word of God, and then eventually they would recognize it and they would promote me into teaching. You know, this is something we have to be careful of. We, it's a fine line walking in there, especially if you ch change churches and saying, you know, I think you need me, but you know, here's what I can do. 
here's what I can do. And it's a very interesting line to walk. You know, Timothy was told by Paul, you have this gift. You've been, the hands have been laid on you. Don't let anybody despise your youth. So he's saying, you've got the gift, and I'm putting you in this church. Take charge of it. There's, a, there's an old, old Chinese proverb that you know, basically says that nothing is really good or bad. And it starts out, I, I left my house to go to, the, go, to the, go to the village to buy stuff. Well, that was a good thing. Well, no, it really wasn't good. I stepped out in the street, and I got run over by, the, by this carriage. Oh, that was terrible. Oh, well, no, the, it belonged to the prince, and the prince took care of me and put me into the, into the hospital. Oh, that was really good. Well, no, when, while I'm in the hospital, I contracted this disease. You know, uh, you know, and it keeps going on. Everything that seems good ends up leading to something that's bad, and everything that seems bad leads to something that's apparently good. We do this in our lives all the time. We keep doing decisions that seem good at the time, and then how many of our good decisions <laughs> lead to bad consequences? And some of our bad, bad decisions end up leading to good consequences. Why? Because God is sovereign, and he's going to do what he wants to do. And usually he wants us to understand that what we think is good is not usually what's good for us. Okay, so he says, but let me show you how I can make good out of bad. All things work together for good for those who are called according to the purposes of God. And, when, and as long as we're letting him run our life, things go well. The day that I'm going, well, God, I think this is really, I'm going to lean on my own understanding. I'm going to do what I think is right. God says, okay, fine, you go do what you think is right, and I'm going to just... I'm going to work against you and let everything go bad. And then pick up the pieces. And then I'll pick up the pieces and we'll make, it, make something good out of the pieces. But, you know, we do this so frequently in our lives. God, I want to follow my ideas. I think this will really be something good to do. And God says, okay, well, you go ahead and do it. It's not what I want you doing. And he lets us ruin some aspect of our life for a period of time. And he goes, okay, are you done? You're done? You're, you're ready to repent? Let me pick up all these pieces and well, we'll just throw those pieces away and we'll put new pieces in, your, in there for you. you know, so we want to be very careful. And Paul is saying, I don't want to have to criticize you guys. I want to lift you up. I want to encourage you. I want to show you my love. And he goes, if, if you've caused me grief, it's just a small part because you're the, ultimately the one that has to suffer. When we're raising our children, when we're teaching in the church, you know, and I've shared with you guys, one of the hardest things about teaching as a pastor is you teach something from the pulpit, you teach something from a Bible study, and then you watch somebody go right out and violate every part of it, and it's just heartbreaking because you know that they're going to suffer for it. You know, and you're heartbroken, but you're not near as heartbroken as they're going to be when they've messed up their life. And yet that's what Paul's saying. You know, I only grieve in part. You're the one that is going to suffer. I'm trying to help you, and yes, I'm grieved. And I think about this as we read through the Bible, and I've, I've talked about this. How repetitious is God in the Bible? It's been amazing to me as I go, you know, as I'm teaching through the Bible, and I'm going, okay, God, uh, you know, you just said this in this other book that, you know, we just talked about this last week in this other book. You know, we just talked about this three weeks ago in this book. We just talked about it. You know, you start seeing how repetitious God is with us. Why? Because he knows that we're hard-headed. Yes. He knows that we're going to keep making the same mistakes, so he keeps repeating himself in the word because he knows us. You know, kind of amazing, but you know, that he has that much patience with us. Yes. 
Because how many times does a parent, how many times do I have to tell you, son, don't do this? Uh, about 503 times. Just a few more. God doesn't do that with us. He just says, I told you. I've told you. I'm going to run out of patience eventually, but I keep telling you. And we look all through the scriptures how he keeps repeating himself on the same topics over and over and over again. And it's just because he knows us. Paul says, you know, I'm, I'm getting a little grieved. I have to keep telling you this, but I'm not the one that ultimately is grieved. I'm just slightly grieved. You're the one that's going to suffer. You're the one that's going to suffer. You know, child, you know, member of the church, I've told you this so many times now, but, you know, and I'm being bothered by having to tell you again, but ultimately you're the one that's going to suffer. You need to surrender to God. Well, I don't know how to surrender to God. Well, you need to learn how to surrender to God. Just do it. You know, and as I tell people, the, the craziest thing is when you finally do it. You're ready to kick yourself because it's like, wow, it was so simple to have done this. Why did I fight for God with God for days, weeks, months, years, decades? You know, there are people that have fought with God for decades. And then they finally give it up to God and go, God, this was so simple. It was so simple to surrender this to you. And I've told people, you just surrender to God. And they go, how do you do it? You surrender. The idea is if the police surrounded this building and told us to come out with our hands up, we have a choice. We can come out with our hands up, or we can sit in this building and say, I don't think so. I don't know how to do this. I don't know if I can trust them to go out there and do this. So I'm just going to sit in this building until they fire the, the tear gas in there and I'm going to crawl out in my hands and knees and then be handcuffed because I didn't come out with my hands up. God's kind of the same way. Yeah. Come on out. Come out with your hands up. Surrender. No, God, I'm going to sit in here until you bombard me with the tear gas of your, of your word and, beat, you know, and come in and beat, beat me into submission. And then I might think about surrendering. And that's unfortunately the way many of us live our life. God, I am just going to do it my way. And God says, okay, you keep doing it your way, and I'll keep putting my face against you, and nothing's going to work. And, you know, you sit back and you say, God, this was a good plan. I did that with God for six years. God, this is a good plan. Why isn't it working? Because God says, it's not my way. I want you to surrender. All right, God, I'm going to do this plan. It's a good plan. It's going to work. And God says, uh-huh, sure. And his face is against me, and it didn't work. God, I've got another plan. I am going to make this one work. God, we're going to make this work. I am going to make this work. And God's saying, would you just give up? I fired enough tear gas into your building that you should be, be crawling out and giving up. And then one day I finally just said, I give up. And God says, about time, let's fix it. Yeah. How often do we sit there and fight with God? Not surrender. I'm going to go out with my guns blazing. <laughs> Good old cowboy movie, right? You know. I'm not going to surrender. I'm going to come out with my gun blazing. You're going to have to kill me. The only thing is, God is willing to kill us if it takes it that. He wants to kill our flesh. If that's what it's going to take to, to break us, he's willing to do that. And he's saying, just surrender. Just give up your ways and surrender to me. And, you know, we should look at it and say, God, you have a good plan. You are good. You have a good plan for me. You have good thoughts toward me. And yet we want to fight against him so often. Is it possible that what we're wanting is for him to surrender to us? Of course. Not consciously, but that is exactly what we're doing. Yeah, I didn't mean you that. Know, it's, it's just like when I have said, you know, 
God, I have this wonderful plan, you know, I want to do it my way. God, I, I think you really have a bad plan. We may not say that to him, but aren't we really saying that to him when we say, I'm not going to surrender your plan? God, your plan is really bad. I can't see how it's good. Now, none of us are usually that bold to tell God to his face, God, your plan is terrible. It stinks. I'm going to do things my way. But isn't that really what we're telling him when we say, God, I'm going to do it my way? Your plan just isn't good enough. It's not a good plan, and I'm going to just do things my way. You know, and we, I've talked about this several times, you know, the way we actually, the things we're saying to God, even though we're not literally saying it to him. Because nobody's going to tell God, your plan is terrible, God. Because we don't think that way. But we're going, my way is, is what's going to work. My way is better than what God's wanting me to do at this time. We want to be very careful because it is very easy to fight against God and not submit to him, not surrender to him. It's real easy to do. We all do it at various points in our life. It, I just try to help us understand that when we do those things, we're basically telling God, God, my way is better than your way. You know, God, you just don't know enough. You know all things, but you don't know enough about my life to make, give me a good plan. My plan is better because I know my life, and God says, you don't even know your life. You don't even know what's coming down the road to your life. How can you have a better plan than my plan? And you know, our, our goal for God is to surrender. And the one thing I keep hearing from somebody, well, I have no other choice. Well, let God show you choices that you don't even know. Yeah. And I've done the same thing. Believe me, I've done the same thing. God, I have no other choice. I've got to do this. And God's, you know, and later on I'll go, God, why didn't I just wait for you to show me other options? We look at David's life. David, when he finally convinced Saul that he wasn't going to kill him and take his kingdom, where did David go? He went to the enemy and pretended to be their friend. And it came down to a point where they're getting ready to go to war with King Saul. Okay, he did what he thought was right. He, I have no other option but to leave Israel and hang out with the enemy because I don't want Paul, uh, Saul to change his mind. Now he's in a very catch-22. He's been convincing this king that he's on his side. And this king decides he's going to go fight King Saul. David's in a pickle. He doesn't want to fight against Israel. And yet he's convinced this king that he is on his side. And David has to start praying, God, uh, I kind of messed up here. You know, I've really messed up, God. I've got myself tied in with this king who's now going to fight my king. And my people, what are we going to do? Now, God allowed him and, and, and worked it out. But, you know, David could have been in a really bad place. Oh, yeah. Okay. But the king's leader said, King, are you crazy taking David into battle with Israel? <laughs> and they made David stay behind. Right. The king was ready to take him. He fully trusted David. And was ready to take him into battle. And his generals and stuff and, and princes going, you've got to be nuts. You're going to bring this guy to fight his people. And they made him stay. David was rescued. God doesn't always do that for us. He says, you made your bed. You're going to get to lay in it. And you're going to suffer. And sometimes that's a tough thing. In Proverbs, it says, wisdom calls out to people and then the next thing, it says, those who reject wisdom, wisdom will laugh at them in their calamity. 
you know, sometimes I think God laughs at us when we make bad decisions and says, you're going to suffer the consequences. You're now calling out to me? Tough. Doesn't he actually say that? Yes. Well, Proverbs tells us that. Wisdom calls out. Wisdom calls out. And when you reject it, it says wisdom will laugh at you. And wisdom's a picture of God. Yes. God will laugh at you. You're suffering? Because usually what happens when we're suffering, what, what are we calling out for? It's the same, same thing I would tell kids or, or anybody who says, I'm sorry. Are you sorry for what you did? Or are you sorry that you got caught? And wisdom understands the difference. You're sorry now? Uh, no, you're not quite sorry now. You're, you're sorry that you're going through the hardship, but you're really not sorry for rejecting me. I'm going to laugh until you're ready to say, I'm sorry, and I want you. And God is like that. When we're just saying, sorry, God, I'm so sorry. I don't, wanna, I don't want these bad things happening to me. And God says, uh, tough, you know. You're not, you're not really sorry for what you did. You're just sorry that you're having to suffer. And we've been there. All of us have been there at various times. But we suffer for our decisions that were ungodly that we didn't include God in. What if, because we're in a situation now and we're suffering, we realize the full extending blunt of what we did to put ourselves in this, and then blip, whoop, God tried to rescue us, and we were too busy having a good time with our own plan to be rescued. And does God, then when we repent, does he still laugh at us? When we get to the point of we are repentant of our sin, doesn't take us out of the consequences necessary, but he will give us the comfort and say, I'm here. I'm in the pit of hell with you. I'm in the darkness with you. I am right here with you. Okay, because he, he loves us so much. And if we are truly repentant, he is going to give us the comfort that he is with us. David said, yea, though I walk through the shadow of the valley of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. You comfort me. Who put him in the valley of the death? In some cases, God leads us through the valley of death. Sometimes we just find ourselves there. But God is still going to comfort us when we turn to him. He may not take us out of the consequences. Right? The martyrs, most of the time, were not... Well, let's say, if they, had martyred, if they were martyrs, God had not taken them out of their martyrdom. They faced martyrdom. And not necessarily that they were there for the wrong reasons. God put them there and they faced it, and they came to it. Some of them did foolish things and got put into there. You know, sometimes we do foolish, dumb things, and God says, okay, you're going to have consequences, but I'm with you when you repent. I'm with you when you when you're come to. And this is the hard thing sometimes as a teacher, as a pastor. People will come to you and they go, you know what, I've got to get God in my life, and I've got to start following God, but how do I do it? And they violated just about every rule of God to get there. You know, really hard when somebody has children, you know, children from three or four different individuals, and you're going, okay, how do we make you a family now? Well, that's going to be a tough call because you have violated God's rules and several times over, and trying to draw in and make a family is tough. We have to make some hard decisions, and that means getting God in the middle of our decisions and following what he says. Getting somebody who has run away from their problems all their life. You know, they get into a problem and they run to a new, new town, new, new city, new state, new country. And then they finally decide, well, you know what? I better get my life back together and get it, you know, listen to God. Yeah. How do I make things right? 
well, you've burned every bridge everywhere you've been and you've hurt people. I don't know sometimes, it's a really hard decision. You know, uh, you know at some point you've got to go back and face your problems. And that's not an easy thing sometimes. And that's the story, if you're not hearing from God, go back to the last thing you know that he told you to do and finish it. You know, and I like using Abraham as that example. Abraham, leave the Ur of Chaldean, Chaldees, leave your family behind and go to a place that I tell you. So he leaves the Ur of Chaldees, takes his father and his, and his nephew with him and stops in Haran and stays there for 20 years. You know, and, you, and you look at this and it, you don't have any indication of God ever talking to him during that period that he was stuck in Haran because he wasn't where God was telling him to be. And finally he gets up and says, okay, I've got to go do, father's dead, I'm going to go do what God told me, I'm going to get moving. He still took Lot with him. But, you know, but he finally started back out. And then, God, then we see God talking to him again. You know, if we are disobedient to the last thing we know God told us to do, you can't wait for God to be telling you to do something else because God wants you to do what you're told to do. God was in the, in the promised land waiting for, waiting for Abraham to get there. Now, we know that God is everywhere, but you get the point. He was in Abraham saying, uh, Abraham, I'm, I'm over here. Uh, you're supposed to be over here. Matter of fact, you were supposed to have been here 20 years ago. Uh, how about getting down here? And Abraham finally gets down there, and God starts talking to him again. You know, if you're not hearing the word of God, and this is what Blackaby says in Experiencing God, if you're not hearing from God, look around and see what God's doing and go join him. Go do what the last thing he told you to do is and join God. Most of the time, we as Christians will say, God, I'm over here. Would you get over here and help me? And God says, no, I'm over here doing this work. You just come over here and do what, do what I'm doing. Too many times, we as humans say, God, I've got a better plan. I'm, I'm right here, God. I'm ready to serve you right here where I'm at. And God says, but that's not where we're working right now. We're working over here. We're doing this. Living in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean on into your own understanding in all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. I am sure that Abraham said, God, I've left, I've left Ur, you know, now you haven't talked to me. I've been in Haran for 20 years now and you haven't talked to me. Well, God said, you know, I told you to follow me where I was going to take you and I didn't stop at Haran. I didn't stay there, I didn't stop there. I, I kept going and you stayed. Many times we stay doing something. This is why I keep telling the church, I do not want to do anything in this church just because we've always done it. Right. You know, I want to challenge, should we be doing this anymore? We've done that with the parade. Do we stay with the parade? Do we do, the, do what we're doing? How do we evangelize? Do we want to do something different? Because I, I don't necessarily know all the answers myself. You know, we need each other to help with those decisions. Sometimes it's looking and saying, God, uh, you had this great work. And churches can do this a lot, get stuck in the past. God, when we did this 28 years ago, you did a great revival in the church, and now we're not seeing the revival in the church. And God goes, well, that was good 28 years ago, but I'm over here trying to get you to do this. You know, get over here and join me. And this is what happens. The church does something really good, and then they package it up and sell it to other churches. Well, number one, it was their plan that God gave them. And it might be a good plan, and it might even work. But it wasn't their plan. God's got something else for them to do. 
And this is why I encourage us, let's read the biographies of these guys, but we're not trying to pattern ourselves over what they did. You know, uh, I would like to be a prayer warrior like George Mueller, but you know what? Probably never going to happen. God's got a different plan in stake for us. And we need to be really ready to listen to him and follow through with what he's got for us. God's mercies are new every morning. What does that mean? We need to look at him and see what he's doing that day. Because he doesn't keep repeating himself over and over and over again. Jesus, every time he healed people, did it in a slightly different way. Why? Not because he couldn't do it the same way every time, but because he didn't want us 2,000 years later saying, this is how you do this healing. All right? We're going to heal blindness. Jesus picked up mud, uh, dirt on the ground, spit in it, made a mud pack, and they got healed of their blindness. So that's how you get people healed from the blindness. Well, no, one time he just talked to them. One time he, he touched them. One time he made the mud pack. You know, he did things different. Why? Because he knows human beings like patterns. We like routine. And he's saying, I don't want you to just to get stuck in a, in a routine. I want you to learn to listen to me and do what I ask you to do. And I can tell this out of experience. I used to be a person that could tell you what I would be doing 20, you know, at the time, I'd never thought any would change. I'd tell you what I was going to do next year on any particular day because I had a schedule. And my schedule was what I was going to do. And I had a little bit of fun. I couldn't tell you exactly what I was going to do on a Saturday morning because that was designated a fun, fun slot. But I would tell you one thing, I'd be doing something fun. Okay, whether it was playing soccer or baseball or softball, that particular slot was, was, was designated for fun. Whatever fun might be at that time. But Sunday morning, I'd be in church. Sunday night, I'd be in church. Sunday afternoon, I'd be watching football <laughs> back in those days. Monday night, uh, Monday I'd be at work, and then Monday night, I'd be watching football because that's what I did in those days. You know, but my life was ru ruined. I'm going to stick with ruined. <laughs> was ruined by a schedule. There was no room for God to do anything in my life that didn't match my schedule. If God said, I want you to go to this Bible study, uh, sorry, God, that's not on the schedule. You know, you're going to see me in, in six months when I redo my schedule. We can, we can put that in the, in the schedule. That's the problem sometimes that we can get. God's saying, I need you to be listening to me, Wanting, letting me help you engineer your life. But too many times, we get stuck. God, this is just not what I'm doing. Or you'll hear, well, we've never done it that way. <laughs> well, that's probably a good time to change. <laughs> Let's try something new. Because what you've been doing isn't working. And we need to look at our life sometimes, because we might be able to say that to God, I've never done it that way. And God said, yeah, where are you right now? Let's try something a little different. Gideon, I want you to rebel against these uh, Ammonites that are running you. Nope, nope, can't do that, God. Or Midianites, excuse me, Midianites. Uh, nope, not me. I'm, I'm sitting in here in this, in this wine vat, threshing my wheat with, without the wind. God says, but I want you to do. Uh-uh, God, we don't do things that way. God says, I want you to do this. Now, if you'd have taken that, I'd do, we'd have never heard about Gideon. But Gideon goes, you know, because I love it. Gideon, you valiant man of God, who, me? <laughs> uh, are you sure you know who you're talking to? I'm not a valiant man. I'm hiding in this vat. I, there's no bravery in me. And yet he stepped out. 
and did what God said. How many times is that? You know, a uh, Joshua, you mighty man of valor, we're going to take you into to being leading. You're going to be greater. You're going to be greater than Moses in many ways. Who me? You know, a lot of times in the scriptures there was a lot of who me. Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and, and uh, deliver my people. Not me. I already tried that, God. I, got, I, got, I killed that leader and I got chased out of the country. I'm not doing that again. I can't speak real, very well. I missed that and the other thing. I can't do this. And God says, you're going. You know, how many times has God called us and we go, who, me? God, you want me to do what? Never, never done that before. I'm not going to go out and do that. You know, you want me to teach a class? God, I have never taught a class. I can't teach a class. Uh, God, you want me to be the song leader? Nope, not me. You want me to do, you want me to go talk to that person on the corner about you? Uh-uh, don't, I don't do that, God. You know, we keep oftentimes telling God we can't do what he's called us to do or I won't do what you've asked me to do. And who knows what it is that God's going to ask us to do. He's got a plan. He's got the provision. And he will give us the strength and power if we just step forward to do it. And you know what? That step forward can be scary. God, I think you want me to start this mission, but God, there's no money coming in the church. There's no, there's no people in the church to run it. You want what? George Mueller went through that when he said, God says, uh, here, there's all these kids. Take care of the kids. Starts out with just a handful of kids that him and his wife can take care of, and then next thing you know, he's got tens of thousands of kids that he's responsible for every day to feed, to clothe, to keep warm, to find beds for, and more kids wanting to come in and, he, and having to say no. Sometimes that's the hardest thing is when we have to say no because there just isn't the provision for it because God hasn't opened up those doors. And then he'd get a pile of kids and he'd buy another building and build, or build a new building and take in a whole bunch more kids. Did he start out that way? No. Well, he could have very easily said, God, uh, you know, these vagabonds, these kids that are living on the street that are ruffians, those kids weren't very good kids. They had been abandoned by parents and made to live on the streets, and they lived on the streets by their wits. And if they didn't make it, they died. These were the kids who in our day, we'd call them street kids, the ones that are street smart, that don't trust anybody. And this was the kids that he was ministering to because they had to cheat people, steal from people to survive. And these are the kids he took off the street, gave them, ministered Christ to them, and taught them a new life. How would you like to have that, that be your ministry? You know, go in and take these gang members off the streets and then try to teach them to be human and act like God wants them to act. These were the kids that he brought in. These weren't nice kids that he brought, brought in. These were abandoned kids that he gave a home to. What is the mission that God's asking us to do? Don't know what it is. But you know, we need to be ready to say, yes, God, I'm, I'm ready to obey. I'm ready to stretch out and, and, and allow you to work. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity. We ask that you go with us. Lord, teach us to love one another, to 
to just look at you and follow you and all that you ask us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.